Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true, stories. I'm Sam, one of your hosts today. And I'm Francesca, happy to be virtually joining you all tonight. Hi, everyone. I'm Karen. And I'm Leisha. Thank you for joining us tonight on the seventh episode of our fifth season entitled Down the Block. And I'm Alishba. In this episode, two authors drop everything to go on a physical chase, despite not knowing what they'll find at the end of it. Now, let's get into the first story of the night. This story is by a new author to the podcast, Leah Persram. Leah Persram is a Queens native. She grew up in Richmond Hill and was raised by avid readers whose passions and interests influence her own passion for writing. She's currently a senior at John Jay College with a major in English and a minor in creative writing. In her free time, Leah enjoys spending time outdoors enjoying life, finding inspiration for her writing. She looks forward to her future, where she hopes she'll be exploring new cultures and traveling the world, sharing her journey through her words. Let's take a listen to Leah's story entitled Taco Tuesday. I unclip the duct tape covered walkie-talkie from my apron and toss my red apron into my locker. I'm off the clock, thank God, the floor is packed. My worn white converse squeak down the linoleum floors, stopping only when I punch my ID number into the hand punch machine at the door. I weave through the visitors on the museum floor looking for a tall Brazilian boy with chocolate curls. His nose is crinkled as he squints behind his rounded wire frames. Lucy, you should get your eyes checked. You squint too often, I greet him. Whatever, whatever, you sound like my mom. Guess what? It's Taco Tuesday. I'm hungry. I shove him as we walk out. He pretends to fall forward, but we both know my shove had no effect on him. Yes, Taco Tuesday. I'm excited too. We could walk to the place on Northern. Que rico? Yes, he squeals like a little girl. We walk up 111th Street until we get to Roosevelt. He's telling me about his internship and how they are considering offering him a full-time position. Hey, this is where Mel works, right? He interrupts himself to point across the street at the glass front optical shop where my best friend works. I remember that she said she's there until seven tonight. You wanna say hi, he asks. Maybe I can ask if they take my insurance. He rambles on about how we might just get his eyes checked since I always tell him he squints too much. Maybe we should pop in, Mel won't mind. I remember when she went on her interview for her job here. We picked out her clothes the night before, black slacks, a crisp white collared button up shirt and black flats. We stayed on the phone all night because she was so nervous. We practiced interview questions together, running through multiple ridiculous scenarios that would never happen. I smile, remembering how we once were. I decide that we shouldn't pop in today, mostly because Mel's boss keeps bugging me to tutor her son in ELA, 
and I don't feel like having that conversation right now. But I tell Luciano that I'll call her tomorrow to ask about an appointment for him. As we cross the street, he takes my hand, pulling me along faster. He always insists on walking instead of taking the train so we can spend more time together. Our schedules are so compact, they barely match up, but we make it happen for our Taco Tuesdays. Suddenly though, now several blocks away, we see Mel across the street, not at work. Is, is that her? Yeah, her waist-long black hair dances behind her as she hurriedly walks down the street. She pulls her navy blue peacoat close to her body and readjusts her purse while she waits at the crosswalk. It seems odd for her to be out at 3.30 in the afternoon, especially since we just walked past her job not too long ago. The shop definitely doesn't close until 7 and she always spends an extra 30 minutes tidying up. Sometimes she goes out with her coworkers after to the Cucho Frito a couple blocks down. I pause and watch her, whispering to Luciano that we are not going to say hi. But she's your best friend, he says. That's the problem, I hiss. She didn't tell me she was going anywhere. She's supposed to be at work right now. Mel and I have been friends since high school. We had the same exact schedule our freshman year and always skipped AP US history to go to our art class. We also had creative teachers who all created alphabetical seating charts. So naturally, Perez and Persram went together. As a nervous, awkward, directionally challenged 14 year old in a brand new school, any familiar face in the hallways would have been welcome. But by our first week, we knew each other's whole life stories and would blare one direction in our shared earbuds while we walked to class. Mel got the left side of the earbud, I got the right side. Every time. It felt natural to have her by my side. On the day she was absent, I didn't know what to do with myself. Of course, I had other friends, but they were nothing like Mel. We always had surface level conversations, like, did you hear the new 1D album? Did you hear that Annie and Zach broke up? Mr. H's math test was so hard. Miss Bello is in a bad mood, so be ready next period. Mel and I could talk about everything though, or nothing at all, and we would be content just in each other's presence. We understood each other's silence. Neither of us were having a great time at home. Her mother and stepfather argued a lot about money while my parents left me under the care of my grandmother because they wanted me to live in a stable home. The first time her mom kicked her out, she was only 15. She'd kick her out because she said there wasn't enough money to support her and her three younger half-brothers. So unless she got a job, she couldn't have a bed. It also didn't help that they were all undocumented which caused further complications. She called me at 2 a.m. from her neighbor's phone sobbing. I woke up my grandmother and we went to go get her. She lived with me for about a month before her mother came to meet her one day after school to tell her that she missed her and wanted her to come home. Mel looks exactly like her mother. They have the same waist length jet black hair paired with orca colored skin that fades to a mellow brown in the winter. Their eyes are different though. Both remind me of almonds, but Mel's eyes are filled with compassion, while her mother's, they're hollowed out. My grandmother told me Mel's mom was a liar, that you can't trust someone who abandons their child on the street. And three months later, 
Mel was living with us again. Then her mother would show up at school, and Mel would go back home again, only to then come live with us a few months later, all over again. Money. That was always the issue. We never told anyone about Mel's situation, and no one ever asked. Living with Mel allowed us to see sides of each other we never saw at school. At both places, she was always honest, caring, and understanding. But at school, she was more put together. She was a straight A student. She was responsible and cheerful. At home though, I'd see her break down and cry. We shared a room, her twin bed on the left side while mine was on the right. A small white night table with a lamp that had a yellow shade sat between us. Sometimes she'd call my name out at night to check to see if I was still sleeping so she could cry without me knowing. That was us for the rest of high school. Neither of us had sisters, but I'd like to think this is what a sister would be. Someone who's always there for you, no questions asked. So is she really lying to me about her work schedule right now? Why? Deep down, I worry that I know the answer. Let me check her location, I say out loud, more to myself than to Luciano. I shove my hand into his black North Face puffer coat pocket and feel around for my phone, but he grabs my hand instead. He pulls it out, I huff with agitation. Don't you think you're being a little crazy, like, obsessive? She doesn't have to tell you everything. You're not... It isn't that she has to tell me everything, it's that she does tell me everything, no matter what. That's why this is a problem, Luciano. Now, please give me my phone and don't talk so loud. You're already tall and stand out. I don't want Mel to notice us. I frantically swipe through my apps, looking for the Find My Friend app. It's out of her character not to tell me where she's going. She never broke the habit of telling me since we had lived together for so long. Most times, she asks if I would accompany her, if she had to do laundry, or wanted to study at the library, or if she noticed it was getting late. She would call and ask if I could meet her, so we could go home together. I would do the same too. It's our thing. Even when I would sneak out of the house, I'd still tell her. She would always lecture me like an older sister would, but she would still help me get out of there, undetected of course. She'd always help me leave. But she never had the guts to leave at night, too. She might as well have, though, since she never went to sleep either, until I get back anyways. She'd always wait to make sure I got home safe. If she ever did sneak out, though, she knew I'd do the same for her. So where would she go without telling me? The last time she did this was when Luciano and I first started dating. That was our first argument in the then six years we'd had been friends. I couldn't remember her telling me, but she claims she did because she says I helped her pick out her dress and her makeup. She had gone out on a date too, but she had never showed me the guy. I did see the bruises he left on her wrists and thighs though. She swore she would never see him another time. After that, she started telling me more than once where and when she was going out, and she never came home with bruises again. My eyes remained locked on my phone. Her location is pinned at her job, but it says 23 minutes ago? How convenient. 
Are we really going to follow her? Babe, what about Taco Tuesday, Luciano whines. I hate when he whines. He's a grown 24-year-old man. This isn't even the time for this right now. But if I show I'm irritated, it'll just cause a problem. Just focus. We have time. It's early. I just want to know what's going on. Then just ask her. His anger builds in his voice. I can't. If she wanted me to know, she would have told me. I just want to make sure she's safe wherever she's going. We both know that's not the whole truth, but fine. He pouts. We tail her, keeping a half a block distance between us. As we walk down Junction Boulevard in silence, I fight the urge to throw up. The more I allow myself, the more I think I know exactly where she's going. I start fidgeting with my hands, cracking my fingers, and playing with my coat zipper until Luciano grabs my hand. I want her so desperately to just be going on an errand for her boss. But I can feel in my chest that she's not. We walk until Junction meets 34th Ave. I see her cross over the street and walk down 34th. I know she waits in the playground on Northern Boulevard before she goes to see him. She has to wait to make sure his wife isn't home. He's disgusting. I met him once, accidentally of course. They were on the Manhattan bound 7 train in the fourth car from the front. I barely made it into the train as I transferred from the E at Court Square. I ran up the stairs straight into the train. I didn't notice him at first. I was too concerned that I might be late to meet Luciano at some ramen place he wanted to try in Long Island City. I kept checking my phone despite knowing that there was no service in this area. What caught my attention was giggling and a hushed voice saying, No, stop it, not here. Immediately, my eyes moved through the cart to see if there was any woman uncomfortable in a man's presence. All I found was Mel with an older man wrapped around her. If I hadn't known her, at a quick glance, I would have just assumed they were father and daughter. His greasy gray hair was slicked back. It looked like he hadn't washed it in weeks. His shirt had sweat stains around his armpits, and it was unbuttoned, showcasing his unruly chest hair, but his face was clean-shaven. A poor attempt to look young. He didn't even have a briefcase, nor a suit jacket, but he wore well-kept, wingtip, darkened leather shoes. He was bracing against the door, with one hand in her silky long black hair, and the other under the back of her shirt, resting on the curve of her hip. He held her as if she was a possession, not a person. Her name escaped my mouth before I could even process what was happening. She stiffened immediately, but quickly pulled herself back together and flashed a smile. Leah, come say hello. Meet Don Luis. Hola, señor. Me llamo Leah. Soy la mejor amiga de Melanie. Hola, Leah. Mucho gusto. Soy un amiguito de Melanie. Our greetings were formal and unenthusiastic. He had dropped his hand from her waist and stuck it out for a handshake when I saw it. His ring. A sacred gold band that promised commitment is now a symbol of his infidelity. He gave me a smile that was more telling than anything else. He knew I knew, but of course I didn't want to cause a scene on the train. My eyes did all the talking between Melanie and me. She knew that she'd been caught. Just two weeks ago, 
She told me that she was focused on graduating so she could move out. She had no time for a relationship. Or so I thought. I had instantly felt sick to my stomach and stayed that way for the rest of the night until I heard from her. She called me around 3am, but her words were slurred. She was drunk. All she said was, back door. I silently slipped from our bedroom and creaked down the stairs. I had lied to my grandmother about where she was, said she saw her mother and wouldn't be back for a couple of days. I didn't know how she'd react in the morning when both Mel and I were sitting at the kitchen table. I carried her up the stairs and changed her into her nightdress. I wiped off her makeup. The entire time, there were tears running down her face as she mumbled how much she loved me. We barely spoke for the next few days. I wasn't mad at her anymore. I was concerned, but she kept avoiding me. Finally, on the fifth day, we were home alone and she was ready to talk to me. Leah, I can, I can explain, she sputtered out. She met him at work. He was one of the patients there. He comes by every two weeks to pick up contacts and she had grown fond of him. She was too embarrassed to tell me he was an older man. He started bringing her bouquets a couple months ago and she agreed to go on a date. I wanted to believe her. I wanted to trust her, but she conveniently forgot to mention he was married. It started to make sense. She was coming home late, her phone was off more often, and she kept saying she had to work when really she wasn't in the office. She became someone I didn't know anymore. Someone who told lies quickly and averted my eyes. I looked at her blankly while she looked me in the eyes and continued to tell me lies. Lies I know she believed. He loved her and was going to help her find an apartment so she wouldn't have to keep going back to her mom. A friend of his was a CEO that paid well and was looking for a personal assistant. She flashed me a look that reminded me of her mother. Her eyes looked hollowed out. Dark. It wasn't my place to judge. Love is love, I guess. But money isn't love. I wonder if she forgets he's a married man. How does she think this will end? I didn't say much because our shared silence was always understood. You know, Mel, I love you. I want you to be safe. But this, this isn't you. Tears slid down my cheeks. She'd only see me cry once before that time. That was the second time. The first time was the time my grandmother had a mild stroke. She cried with me. I don't know why she cried, but she promised she'd stop. And she did, for a while. But when she went back to live with her mother, she would start seeing him again. It was a cycle. By now, she's seen me cry plenty of times, and five months ago, my grandmother told her she cannot come and live with us anymore. She felt the back and forth, the constant hushed arguments, the coming home late and drunk was too much. Mel was 21, an adult. She was now responsible for her own well-being. We walk past the school, the black aids towering over us, making it feel like we're walking through a prison yard. The green turning gray turf-filled baseball field is empty. The air is still. We hear nothing, not a single shrill of a child sliding down the slide or a child begging their father to push them higher on the swing. I see her walk past the playground and dart across the street, disappearing behind the scaffolding. But she comes back into view a few seconds later 
I watch her bounce up the steps, looking over her shoulder before she enters the brick building through the double doors. The first time I saw this building, there was no scaffolding out front, and it was 3 a.m. Mel had called me that night, and she said she was in a predicament. I heard screeching in the background and assumed it was her mother. I offered to send her an Uber, but she urged me to come get her. She said she had to go and that she needed me there with her. She texted me an address I'd never seen before and asked me to bring her some clothes. When I pulled up, she was outside the building, only wearing a robe, purse in hand. She flung open the passenger door and didn't bother to greet me. She smelled like sex, sweat, and cigarettes. She thanked me for the clothes. We sat in silence the whole way home. When I pulled in the driveway, I finally looked at her face. He has a wife. Mel knew I wasn't quick to judge, but she also knew I have certain standards. I thought she did too. I thought we both abided by certain morals, and sleeping with someone else's husband was not one of them. How could I overlook this? Even for my best friend? Besides, she was clearly in physical danger. She had scratches on the right side of her face. Her eyes were puffy, and her left eye was bloodshot. I didn't even know what to say. All I could mumble was that she needed to leave in the morning before my grandmother was up. I can't believe she'd go back into this building. After what happened here? I stare at it, remembering her standing there on the street, almost naked. He'd let her leave like that, and yet, here she is, back again. Even though she'd sworn to me at least three times that it was over, that she was ending it, that she was finally making enough money. Luciano pulls me into a hug. My head is tucked under his arm and my face is pressed against the cold plastic of his puffer jacket. I'm sorry, Leah, he says. He tries to comfort me, but he doesn't know what to do. He slightly pulls my hood off of my head and places a kiss where the fur of my hood was. I stand there, still and outwardly emotionless. Internally, I'm furious and disappointed, but mostly, I'm concerned. If she needed the money, she could have asked me, why does she keep sleeping with him? She's a call girl. His call girl. He calls, and she goes. He pays well. She always has a new purse hanging off of her shoulder. Maybe he could buy her a new phone, since hers rarely takes my calls anymore. I'm still in silent for a long time. Finally, Luciano interrupts my thoughts again. We're close to Querico, he says gently. Let's go, my love. It's our Taco Tuesday. Oh my goodness. Oh. It, uh, oh. The way that that ends is just so, you know, heartbreaking. And oh my goodness. Thank you so much for being here today, Leah. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for coming. Like, yeah, I'm just going to jump right into it because obviously we have so many questions about how that ended and what happened after, if anything. But um, to get some, some, some more backstory, um, you use background information on you and Mel's relationship throughout and your bond throughout all of high school and, of course, living together when her mom kicked her out and, you know, everything that followed that. And you use these moments to really build the suspense around why it was so strange to see her hiding something from you. 
And oftentimes when we see our friends making these ill-advised choices or ones that we wouldn't necessarily make, it's easy to kind of mix up the person that we see them as from years of knowing them and all of these things and the person that they are and things that they're struggling with. So can you talk about how you wanted to convey that kind of back and forth in this story? Right. So when I was originally writing the story, I started out with a draft and I didn't have our relationship or how um, Mel was before, um, you know, her our incident and understanding like um, her current relationship. And then I decided that um, I have to make everyone love her as much as I love her so they can feel my hurt, my pain and understand why it is that this is something that like, you know, has a special place in my heart I wanted um you know everyone to understand like this is who she was and that this isn't her and that in these moments like of moments of like vulnerability and I guess overwhelming and frustration this is what she resorted to that at heart she's a really good innocent person who might have just strayed because of like social pressures pressures in her household pressures from her mother things like that and how Mm -hmm. they can change a person into someone who literally looks unrecognizable but it's these moments I guess where someone's true character I guess comes out even though that's not what we want to see or Mm -hmm. think we know. Yeah it's like a side of her that has just been pushed to kind of the ends of 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 you know what she's capable of because it's all of these things that are pushing at her and pushing at her and even if she has like you as this strong support system like like we see throughout the story, like these snippets of, of you two just doing anything from taking the same schedule together. Like that's how close you were to, you know, to 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 this. It's it's really it's it's sad and it's heartbreaking. But reflecting and after writing this, I realized there's only so much I can really do for her. And sometimes I guess you need to go elsewhere to find what you really need or to get things that you can't normally get out of, I guess, your current circumstances. Yeah, that's a, that's mm. a really important point too, because um, yeah, like Karen said, you get caught up in arguments with friendships because they're somebody you respect or revere so much, um, especially we have like really long standing relationships with. Um, but I noticed over the course of your story, you really developed that sympathy despite the circumstances um, and really heightened that connection, do you feel like the story ultimately helped you empathize more with the circumstances they were in um, and maybe help you understand it a lot more? Writing the story, I think allowed me to really process and think through my emotions and how I felt towards the situation because I sort of pushed it out of my head because it happened right before quarantine and the pandemic and there was so much going on. I was very emotionally overwhelmed and this truly topped it off and writing it allowed me to clearly see that at the end of it, yeah, I'm, I was angry and I was hurt, but I, I still care and I'm, I'm concerned. Like at the end of it, I just want what's best for her regardless of how we stand. I just want to see her, you know, really be her and not, you know, back into a corner and act as if you know she's a completely different person right and I'm sure she also like I'm kind of getting the sense that maybe your relationship has changed but even those moments of you still showing up for her and going to pick her up when needed like it was really you know sometimes 
when people kind of get to the end of their limits and what they are capable of, um, having people who are just like relentlessly there for them is really, really helpful. So can I ask if your relationship has changed? What, where do you two stand today? Um, unfortunately, we're no longer friends and we don't communicate anymore. Um, it was very heartbreaking and we, we're not on good terms. Um, our last interaction was an argument and afterwards I did try and reach out and apologize, but she um, didn't want to uh, communicate anymore. So um, it's, it's, I'm here if she ever needs me. Um, I'll always be around. I always have a, um, sorry, a place for her in my heart. It's just sometimes um, people grow apart. Yeah, yeah, losing, losing friends is often harder than almost any relationship you really yeah can that, that's so true that's so true. Yeah, and it's something we don't really talk about a lot we talk a lot about romantic breakups we don't really talk about uh friendship breakups that mm -hmm. much yeah like the keepers of all that you are like the people that kind of get you the most in the world like when that leaves we're, we're so sorry that you you know are experiencing that and are like digging this up again but it's i think it's it's so important to to think about and talk about for sure. I definitely agree. Yeah, and it's especially like a different type of pain when you lose a friend. So when our closest friends make choices that hurt us, we can sometimes change how we form friendships down the line. Do you feel like you've changed or altered how you form friendships? That's a really good question. And that's something I honestly haven't um, thought about or really considered. Um, I hope that this wouldn't affect me and how I treat people in the future, but it might well, might as well just have like a, an influence on how much I'm willing to help people in the future. Yeah. Okay, well, you know, that being said, uh, what do you want your readers to take away from this story? That sometimes not everyone is meant to be in your life forever regardless of what your relation is to them but even though you may have bad moments there's always good moments to remember and you might not end on good terms but that doesn't define what your relationship was with that person yeah that's that's really good yeah yeah <laughs> and from this piece we we get how special that relationship was to you like regardless of anything that is happening now or could even happen in the future like this is a person that was very special to you. And we thank you for sharing this like snippet of your life that was really intertwined with her, with us today. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. This story is by a new author and longtime host to the podcast, Rebecca Singh. Rebecca Singh is a self-described jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none type, aiming to learn everything and anything that God will allow her to learn. Though her BA slash MA forensic psychology degree doesn't do much for her paralegal office job, she finds use of her knowledge in a variety of situations, including at home, in church, and with her friends. What more can we say about Rebecca? She volunteers with us as advertisement creator and host, and we always love to hear her saucy line at the end of 
number of Life Out Loud episodes. Let's take a listen to Rebecca's story entitled Enough. The large imposing bookcases in my school's library loom over me as I peruse the colorful spines and long names. This Thursday is my 7th grade's class's turn to borrow books from the library, but I am only browsing as a courtesy. I already have a series I'm working through. The series features a set of twins, one representative of the sun and the other the moon. The two characters create a beautiful dichotomy of solving a similar problem in two very different ways. One twin attempts to take the high route, doing things accepted by society and finding pushback from the rigid structures. The other goes against the status quo, finding a different kind of progress at the expense of his relationships. I couldn't help but feel a certain kinship to both, even at that tender grade school age. That desire of wanting to make a difference but worried about shaking the boat too hard? Even at the age of 12, I knew that this desire was human. Surely the author intended for readers to feel more companionship with one protagonist over the other, but I feel a particular pull towards both. Seeing the pushback against both characters, one systematically and one internally, makes me wonder, which fight is worth it? In the library, I peek up at the higher books that my eyes can barely reach. I somewhat process the words on the spines as my mind whirls into action. I want to write about characters like them, but different. While I like the brother and sister combo, what if their dynamic changed? What if they were sisters? What if they were older? What if they were alone? And in that moment, in that musty old library, I think of two new characters, Amber and Sapphire. <sighs> My mind reels as it concocts a quick idea of who they are. Sisters, twins, one with fire powers, the other with water, their personalities like night and day, their skills different but complementary. I stare up at the bookcase, eyes glazed over for a while. The librarian calls the class to attention, and I turn away from the wall of stories. <sighs> the little burst of an idea in the library does not leave me for many years of my life. The idea churns in my head over and over and over again in the course of years. Over time, Amber becomes my primary focus, and Sapphire turns from Amber's sister, to daughter, to friend, until finally I toss Sapphire out of the story completely, replacing her with other characters who feel more... right. And that's how it feels. Right. Writing these characters, speaking in different viewpoints, figuring out their histories, their personalities, their lives, even tossing them out when need be and piecing together their narratives feels right. I feel at ease dissecting dialogue, mimicking the body language and speech patterns of other people I've met in real life and putting them to words on the page to give the characters more life. In high school, I learned fiction pieces don't always have to be set in magical places. There are stories of people who never existed living in the pages of a book as if they could be my neighbors. With plots driven by character development, I could see how a story doesn't have to have daring sword fights or magical scenarios to be engaging. I take English classes in college, minoring in the subject. Of course, English classes do not mean fiction classes alone. I take classes on different kinds of literature, argumentative writing, and so on. The essays and pieces I write for these classes feel just as right as writing fiction does. The ideas flow smoothly, and I learn new techniques to add to my arsenal of words. Even in my psychology classes for my major, I find the analytic academic writing mentally stimulating and fun to outline and write. 
Sure, I run into the stress of a billion papers due on the same day, but that is an unfortunate part of the college experience. Though I have to admit, my love of writing does not dwindle. And then... I take a class about nonfiction writing. My entire creative flow dead stops. Especially with memoirs. In grade school, I avoided biographies like the plague. Why would I read factual stories about someone who lived a billion years ago? History was interesting, sure, but on my own time, I'd much rather read about magical worlds and interesting people in places I could reach nowhere else but in the pages of a book. Who would want to read about the day-to-day -day life of a famous person, much less a nobody like me just going through their day, right? Sure, reading about a famous life can let us less famous people know what it's like being at the top of the game and how it takes three easy steps to be the best version of yourself or whatever, but who wants to read about nothing? Or, uh, not nothing, but about something or, or someone so extraordinarily ordinary, or maybe not ordinary per se, but who would want to read about what someone like me, what I experience, what I feel, what I struggle with, who, who would care? In college, I learned that the real world doesn't have to be that much smaller than the imaginary. <sighs> in the nonfiction class, I read and listen to stories about the lives of my classmates. There is anger, spite, malice, confusion, sure, but there's also love, joy, and a hope for a better tomorrow. Each week I am enamored with the peace assigned to us, each classmate taking turns talking about their ordinary, extraordinary days in their day-to-day -day lives. They become characters on the pages of these stories, characters I can relate to and feel for. And I wonder if they'd feel the same about me, about my character. <sighs> the class runs like a workshop. After about six weeks of lessons and practice, we work entirely with each other's essays as our focus. Each day, we read two students' stories and workshop the pieces together. I try and get an early date to present my story. Then, between all my other homework, studies, and responsibilities, I finally sit down to write about my life, a life that I've actually lived. <sighs> I stare at the blank document. My computer screen glows warm against my face as I will words and ideas to manifest. My head draws as much as a blank as the document in front of me. It's not like I don't live an interesting life. I'm a pastor's daughter who goes to school in the big city, who goes on vacation in different countries with her family every once in a while, and who sometimes participates in international church events in Caribbean countries like Guyana, Trinidad and Tobago, where we praise God on a stage, encouraging those who don't know God to start learning about him. I sing, I dance, I play video games, I drive, I write, I love swimming, and I'm afraid of heights, but the question remains on every single rubric, every single comment, and on every single follow-up question on every and each of every one of my memoir draft pieces is, who am I? <sighs> who is telling the story? The audience needs to know the narrator as a character. The audience needs to connect with her. What I do is interesting. How I affect 
the people around me is interesting. Who I am? Anger, spite, malice, confusion. How do I make others want to read about that? <sighs> Even my fiction writing suffers. The surge of academic writing and reading I need to partake in might play a part in my creative funk. I'd managed to join the BAMA program after all, so the sudden need to understand master level classes becomes priority. My two psychology classes are, after all, kicking my butt. <sighs> but that's not only it, is it? I mean, sure, the situations surrounding me aren't exactly helping, but there's something else there. I want to return to the comfort of writing my fictional characters. Can't Amber take my place? She's braver, stronger, more outspoken than I have any right to be. If she didn't live in a world saturated in mystic and whimsy, maybe I'd pretend she was me and just write her in my place. <laughs> that would be unbelievable. Amber is far too cool to be confused for me. <sighs> Not to mention, my personal life is in turmoil. Three people, my grandparents and their helper, moved into our house around this time, disturbing the relative peace of the household. Now, the television is always playing loudly every day my brother and I come home from classes, and my grandma's shrill, loud, piercing voice calls for us, constantly, consistently, to spend time with her, to help her, to sit with her. We just got back from school, right? We don't have anything else important to do, right? My life, my time, and what I choose to do with it is important too. I refuse to feel guilty. <sighs> I stare at the blank document in front of me. Do I really want to write about this time in my life? This time, with my grandmother screeching, with my parents incapable of seeing the mess she causes as they leave and return home at odd hours for their jobs, with my brother trying to take the high road, quelling her need for constant affection and feeding into a narrative in which my grandma writes us as just sitting there with her all day long as good little grandkids, unable to do anything else, incapable of moving from her side without ripping our bodies from her deep metaphorical claws. Do I really want to write about me playing the bad guy, pushing back because if I don't no one else will, and I will not. And I cannot allow this woman to come into our lives and run it the way she so desperately want to. Do I really want to write about that? This moment feels so permanent, so focal and so loud that any other memory I try and pull out of my tired brain gets overwhelmed and overshadowed by the screeching and the static and the news anchors loudly declaring today's gruesome truths. <sighs> I write. The words are clunky. The imagery is vague. Even as I write, I realize it's just anger and dissatisfaction wrapped up in black and white. It's ugly. It's angry. It's coherent. It's a story. I need the grade. I need this piece finished. <sighs> the piece is not pretty. I find it years later after wiping it from my memory and shoving it into a deep part of my work flash drive. The piece, entitled Too Pretty to Care, is angrier, meaner, 
and more full of venom than I remember. I read the piece once because I could only handle reading it once. Was I okay? How did I allow myself to share that with the class? Why was I allowed to? People read it. People commented on it. I remember none of it. I got my grade. <sighs> Ironically, I joined the nonfiction podcast that the professor runs. Despite my absolute struggle writing nonfiction memoir, I figure surrounding myself with better writers who are able to access that nonfiction memoir writing gene in their systems will be the best way to bring out new ideas and new tactics that I may not have otherwise thought of trying. Each episode on the podcast features stories written in a variety of voices. I learned about taking on a voice of innocence, braiding multiple stories seamlessly into one coherent piece, and many other things. I write questions to ask in the interview portion of the podcast sometimes. I still struggle to write a piece of my own. But my fiction writing improves, as does my academic writing. In fact, despite knees knocking in high school during public speaking class, even my speech writing improves faster than my nonfiction does. <sighs> despite my professional production role on the show, nonfiction remains out of my grasp. To me, nonfiction feels like chasing down someone just out of reach. I know I have the skill, the ability, the technical know-how, but actually writing it? Writing nonfiction feels 10 paces ahead, always getting further and further away as my sneakers hit the asphalt and I run quickly trying to reach something I know I'm not fast enough for. For years, I push and pull with multiple pieces. I workshop ideas, toss aside stories, mix ideas together, let friends give commentary, give up and start again. The whole process feels like chasing down that man who stole my friend Kim's purse on a nice summer Sunday. One of the most recent things I thought to write about. <sighs> the coffee is warm in my hand that Sunday. The water by my side weighs heavy and untouched as I chase after the man who ripped the purse from Kim's wrist. He had knocked the coffee out of Kim's left hand and ripped the purse out of her right, running in between us as he mothered in excuse me and bolted off of Liberty Avenue and into one of the residential streets. I'm out of gape, confusion evident. I look after the man and then snap my head back to Kim when I hear her scream, My purse! Quickly, I put two and two together in my head and realize that the man darting away must have taken her purse. I don't think about what we should do. I don't think about calling police. I don't think about how much money is stolen. I don't think is what I'm saying. All I feel is a compulsion burning deep in my bones and before I know it, I shout a command. Get him! Kim darts down the block faster than me. We just come from church and I pray for God's guiding grace to bless us with wisdom as we do what is probably the most unwise thing the two of us could have possibly done. As I run, I focus on my breaths. Maintaining a good breathing technique is one of the most important things to do while endurance running. I think. Right? I don't know. A car drives down the one-way block Kim and I are running up. And I think to myself, these people could think we're children playing. So I scream, HELP! at the top of my lungs. Even if the car that I saw driving beside me couldn't do anything, at least the residents in the area could hear Kim and I crying for help and call the cops while we do our best in the chase. What I do not account for, however, is for the car heading down the one-way block to stop, kick it into reverse, and speed up the block to assist my friend and I on our chase. Yes! Yes, we have a chance. Focus. Kim is still paces ahead, and the battle isn't won. Not just yet. We have to do our best to keep following the man, and then... And then... Then what? At some point, the thief realizes there's a vehicle chasing after him. 
I see the gears turn in his head as he desperately turns, running directly at Kim and myself. We could stop him. Here. And now. Kim sticks her leg out to try and trip him. He jumps. I throw my coffee at his face. I miss. He charges at me. The pepper spray in my bag weighs heavy. He'll get too close. The spray may fly back at me, too. Also, is pepper spray even legal in New York? Was the purse worth being questioned by the police about the pepper spray? My shoulder bumps into the thief as he runs past. I don't know why I thought I could body block, but I did. I turn and try to throw my heavy water-filled thermos with all my might at his big, ugly head. I hear the metal clank. I miss. Kim runs past me again. I slow down. The burst of stamina does not last, and I am not as fast as I wish I was. He gets away. My running, my shouting, my throwing, they just weren't enough. <sighs> my nonfiction writing about my life feels much like this. A never enough story. Not fast enough, not smart enough, memory not sharp enough, just not enough. I am not a nonfiction writer. I tell myself this until I believe it. <sighs> that Sunday, Kim's purse was stolen, yes. And we chased after the thief, yes. And the screaming, the running, the making a mess, the noise making, and the getting low-key injured when my cuticle got caught in the thief's black jacket, Kim and I find solace in the way strangers approach us. The driver, who'd shot down the one-way street in reverse, stops besides us and tells us he drove around to find the guy, but that he disappeared. The driver promises to keep trying, and Kim and I thank him for his help. People who live around the area ask if we're all right and stay with us until the police arrive. <sighs> Maybe nonfiction is a lot like chasing down a man for a purse with not even $50 in it. Running and doing my best but knowing my best won't be good enough, panting at the end of it all, wondering if keeping up the chase was even worth it. But then, the police come. And Kim's purse is restored. And we learn that the man who caught the thief saw Kim and I running after him. The hero saw him climbing from someone's private backyard trying to make his escape. The hero managed to catch him in the end. The thief was caught because we'd followed through. And Kim and I did our best to make things right. This wasn't how I expected the day to go. But a lot of things of my life turn out in ways I didn't really anticipate. Kim and I still have a lot of questions to answer. Questions from the police and our parents. But in that moment, we were content. After all, we had succeeded, right? Though not in the way I had originally thought we would. <sighs> and so here we are, at my desk working from home, no longer in a library but still dreaming up stories and ways to write them. I imagine what would happen if I tried writing my story in Amber's voice, with the cadence that I set for her and the rules I've placed on her personality. But when I start, I find myself in that place of stasis again, as if I can't even write anymore. In a way, it feels like Amber's telling me no, that I need to find my own voice, just like how I gave her one of her own. It's not easy, finding your own voice. I worry I'll be too loud, too confident, too scared, too timid, too angry, too... much. I worry I'll never be enough for a reader to want to know about me and about the life that I lived, or even that maybe... Maybe I'll be too much. As I struggle with ideas, how to blend them together and bleed them into a coherent whole, I wonder if nonfiction writing, 
if writing about me will ever feel totally right. <sighs> I am not a nonfiction writer, but looking back at old drafts and reading stories, nonfiction and not, that I attempted back in school, and even attempts I tried after I hung up my degree and started working in a law office, I have to laugh a little. I am not a nonfiction writer, no. I'm a storyteller. Genre be damned. And that, that is enough. Wow, that was a really good ending. That was really good. That genre be damned part, I love that. Oh, thank you, thank you. Oh, for sure. Rebecca, it is yes. our first time seeing you on the other end of this virtual now, but table. Yeah, Woo! yeah. Yeah, We're I'm used so to having excited. you write questions and, you know, do the interviews with us over here on this proverbial side. Uh, all the behind the scenes content. Yes. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's been, it's, it's been, it's been years of this and also. Three years, four years. Uh, give or take. Yeah. 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 Pretty much of, of kind of, you know, talking about stories and loving on stories together and, also, you every once in a while saying, and I'm writing something. Yeah. I'm doing it. And it never kind of, you know, like, like got to where we are thankfully at now. So thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks in for this having way. me. Of course. Of course. I'm so glad to just finally get a piece that I am satisfied with. And that works. Yes. Honestly. Uh, and yeah. does it work? <laughs> Absolutely. So speaking of this piece. Yes. Um, it's a story, a nonfiction story, that's about your discovery of nonfiction through Professor Madrazo's class and your journey as a storyteller as you're uncovering all of this. And it's a bit meta at points as you walk us through the push and the pull of your internal dialogue of trying to fight to create a piece of nonfiction and how to make yourself a character. Um, and it flows effortlessly into this slice of life from your day, from the day rather that your friend Kim's purse was taken. Mm -hmm. And it, the first time I read it, it, it like blew my mind. I'm like, oh shit, she's doing it. Like <laughs> it's happening. We're yeah. doing the creative yeah. nonfictioning. Um, so can you just tell us how you navigated writing a story within a story that's also about storytelling? <laughs> well, <laughs> actually when I first wrote this piece, it was, four pages of the chase and that was it it was the chase oh. and I sent it to Madrazo and I was like this is the chase and it was a plot <laughs> it flowed like a plot it was a story mm -hmm. this is it and I, and I sent it to Madrazo and I was like I wrote something mm -hmm. and she told me there needs to be a push and a pull you look like a hero here where's the internal conflict where's the conflict and I'm like sitting there and I'm thinking to myself I love writing internal conflict that's what all of my characters are about. Mm. Why can't I do it for nonfiction? And she and I were talking and I mentioned wanting to write a piece about my struggle with nonfiction as well. As just, it was basically a throwaway line because I was just so annoyed at myself for not being able to write a piece that felt like a piece. Yeah. And, and then Madrazo tells me like, wait, that's a form of like disempowerment to combat this kind of like heroic nature that you have. And mm -hmm. I was like, are you telling me that I could make a nonfiction piece about running down the block chasing somebody? She says, maybe. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's not just 
me warring with it, but it's like, you know, Madrazo and like other friends and other nonfiction writers who are willing to look at the pieces and say, hey, man, you're a good writer. You're struggling. Mm-hmm. And, and being able to push it to this level where it's like, all right, yeah, it's a piece and it flows well and the prose is good, but the story isn't there. The character isn't there. And, you know, it hurts to hear it you know, in the moment, because it's like, I tried so hard, I'm doing my best trying to write the piece. But I know in my heart that the only reason that they're telling me that is because like, they want to see it be at the potential that it could be. So I can't be any more happy with how it turned out. (laughs) Oh, that makes us so happy to hear. And you you really get all of the different parts of you in this. Like, like I said before, like many of us have known you for years. So to see who you are as a character reflected in this and so like beautifully done. And so you you feel all of it. You feel the different layers that are you. And that's, I think what makes this piece extra special for people like me very selfishly, but. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so glad. Cause I did show you a couple pieces before and you give me the same kind of advice though. You tried to be a little bit more nicer about it. I appreciate it. I'm not nice. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, you are nice, but you're also very direct. And it's like, all right, cool. I'm going to just go cry in a corner for a little bit and try again. <laughs> it was needed because it, it got here. I'm is sorry to hear that. <laughs> I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> I, I love how you describe all the components that go into storytelling. It's not just like, oh, here's a piece. It's a whole process. You mm-hmm. have to want to be vulnerable. You have to make a story that not only you feel your readers will be able to relate to, but that mm-hmm. you feel comfortable with sharing. Yeah. And it takes a lot of vulnerability. It takes a lot of hope. It takes a lot of anger, that, you, like you mentioned in your story. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, in the beginning, you mentioned how you were introduced to a set of twins in the series. And you instantly felt a connection with these characters, although they both contradicted each other. You then further explained how the series has encouraged you to create your own story with characters that have similar qualities as these twins, but the dynamic of your story would be different. In relation to this, how have the twins or Amber changed the way you approach character development in your stories? And have they provided you with a premise on how to ensure that each character is relevant in the embodiment of your story? So I'm a big fiction reader. I love fiction. I love fantasy. So not only reading books, but also like watching video games, playing video games, but mostly story driven video games and stuff or like TV shows and just watching how the writing is done. One of my favorite parts about you know, learning how to write and creating stories is dialogue. I absolutely love playing with dialogue. I enjoy it when characters have different cadences, different rules to their dialogue and things of that nature. And when it comes to my character, Amber, or the two twins from the start, to be honest, I haven't really thought about those twins in a long time because I've had other characters who have, you know, prevailed in my mind as the years went by but they're the maybe the earliest that I remember being interested in oh these characters are characters they have depth they have 
they have responsibilities they have such a such a warring kind of personality that i was yeah. very drawn to that and while it they're not the first characters to have like characterization mm. they were the first ones that i kind of latched onto because they lived in this like fantasy world and they dealt with all of this fantasy stuff but there was an element of humanity to it that i just like mm. really drawn to so i guess in a way you know over the years, depending on which characters stick by me and which kind of fade off into the distance, I've learned how to decide and choose like the personality traits and what works for certain characters and what doesn't fit their quote unquote personalities. Even though you might be thinking, well, you're making up their personalities, why wouldn't it fit? Well, you can't be one to the next or you can't be like, I don't know what's a good example. You can't be someone who, who's like, I can't think of a good example, but there are certain like personality traits that kind of mm -hmm. conflict. Right. Like you want to be surprising, but you can't be inconsistent. Right. So like I wouldn't have a character who is very stoic and very stone faced right. and then have him like start screaming at the top of his lungs out of mm -hmm. nowhere for, for a scene just because it feels funny or something. Right. right. It would have to feel inevitable. Yeah. Because of things building. Exactly. Exactly. That's so interesting. Uh, going back to the twins, the first characters that you wrote about, um, you mentioned Amber several times throughout your piece, signifying how much the character has grown to mean to you. However, in your story, you mention how Sapphire eventually fades out. I can't help but wonder what made you hold on to Amber and not Sapphire. What was it about Amber's development that made you feel a stronger connection as opposed to Sapphire's development? I'm wondering this too. Well, to be honest, I, I can't really pinpoint it more than I did in the piece where I said it, she just felt right. So there's mm. just an element about Amber that I, I enjoyed more so than Sapphire to the point where I just wanted to keep her by my side. And to be honest, I'm kind of using her as a crutch in this piece too, because while this piece <laughs> is about me, she's still there to, like giving me support, which is a lot of fun for me. Um, but in terms of keeping her around, I guess I kind of, in a way, I gave her a lot of my personality. And instead of dividing it between Amber and Sapphire, and had them being two, two sides of the same whole, I decided at one point that, no, I want one whole character. And for some oh. reason, Amber was the one who, who stuck around. And it <laughs> might be because she has like a fire affinity when she first started, or her personality was a little bit more brash. Yeah. But I, I can't really pinpoint it because remember, it's been years since I've been thinking about her. So mm -hmm. I don't know exactly what it was that had her stay. But there was a time where I, I really decided that, like, these two have been two sides of the same coin, and I need one character now. And mm -hmm. that just became Amber. It's interesting because you're creating a fully realized round character. And it's, it's to get meta again, it's what you're doing in this piece also to yourself. Because throughout your pieces and writing about yourself, you're like, okay, let me focus on this part of myself because it's what was unleashed during this scene of my life. Mm -hmm. And like almost creating like, um, I don't know if this will translate, but like a caricature 
of a person and in it's kind of like in this piece you came to the realization that like people are so many different things mm-hmm. and part of that is also frustration like there's a part yeah. in there when you name all the part like parts of yourself and you say like malice confusion like the all these things that are like kind of negative mm-hmm. um and it's just so interesting to me because it's like yeah those are parts of absolutely all of us Mm-hmm. but people wouldn't necessarily like highlight them in the way that you did when you're talking about yourself. And that is what makes the character of you in this piece so endearing. And we are rooting for you through mm-hmm. every step of it. Um, and I, I, I just love this piece because it's, it captures the push and pull of being human in such a like wonderful, wonderful way. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, And it's interesting, Rebecca, because your major dramatic question, which I know some of the people in this interview uh, room didn't take the class. So, so you, you, you don't necessarily know about that question, but we'll we'll talk about it at some point. But the question went from like, will Rebecca get the purse back Mm -hmm. to actually will Rebecca the, the original question in the original draft was, will Rebecca get the purse back? But then as she revised the story, it turned into, will Rebecca find her voice and character to write a successful memoir piece? Yeah. That's it, the, the major traumatic question actually shifts mm-hmm. in the revision that she's talking about. Yeah. So good. Mm. So good. Well, Rebecca, is there anything you would like your listeners to take away from the story? Yes, this is the one question I knew I was going to get because everyone gets this question. (laughs) Uh, But the main thing that I want readers to take away from this is find the people in your life who are willing to tell you you can do better. Yeah. Who want to see you do better, who strive to see you do better. And it's going to hurt when they say it's not this isn't your best. And it's yeah. going to suck when, it, when it's like you tried how hard you could and it wasn't at the par that you're used to being at. But find those people that you could trust. Find those people you could lean on. Find those people you can turn to who are going to push you to the place where you are meant to be. Yeah. You so- make me cry. No. <laughs> It'll be the second I, time today. <laughs> I know. And I, I know it's not just me. I mean, you're saying that you got feedback from Karen and other friends and perhaps classmates. So, you know, I, I I'm tearing because that message resonates with me so much too. <laughs> it it could not be more true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. And we see how helpful that is because this story is just it's fucking bomb. It's Thank so you. good. I've never Thank seen you. anything like it, and I I'm so proud of you. Thank you. And that concludes our seventh episode of the fifth season, Down the Block. We're all so excited to bring you new stories soon, amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from. You can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind the scenes action.
We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible, including our sound engineers and editors, as well as our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.